Good morning and welcome. Thank you all for achieving verticality this morning and joining us for the next 50 minutes or so. I'm Diana Nordland. I'm with the MSU Lansing Residency in Michigan. Michigan's a great state. Come visit sometime. Yes, I have planted some audience members to be particularly enthusiastic today. And my other added qualification to take a few moments of your time today is I am also a practicing attorney. Um, I'm full-time in the emergency department, and then I practice two days a week at a firm that largely manages med mal cases. So I live and breathe this every day, um, and I, I truly hope that you walk out of this room today with some concrete tools to use to decrease your risk in the malpractice arena. So with that, we'll talk today specifically about your chart, how what you choose to document and how you choose to document can make or break you. Your chart can and will be used either for or against you in the unfortunate event that it is subject to a retrospective analysis by a plaintiff's attorney. And to better understand why certain things are important and why they're not, you have to know a little bit about how a plaintiff's attorney thinks. That's a scary place to be in a plaintiff's attorney's brain, and hopefully we won't spend too long there today, enough to scare you perhaps but not scar you, I hope. Um, but it is important to have a grasp of exactly how your chart is going to be used. Because the record, of course, hopefully still the most important function is the medical function and the continuity of care aspect of things. Then there's the billing and coding function, of course, that's important too. But there are three key medical legal functions, the first of which is your chart very well may be your only memory of your encounter with the patient. Many physicians are in the position where months or years later, they receive notification that they're being sued and they have no recollection of the encounter with the patient. We see so many patients every day. We work all year round. Very often, what you see on that page in front of you is your sole recollection of that patient encounter. And it's an extremely uncomfortable place to be, to be scratching your head and thinking, what was I thinking? Right? That's not a good place to be. So there's the memory function. Then there's the evidence function. It will be used as evidence if you get all the way to trial. There'll be a little yellow sticker in the corner. Plaintiff's Exhibit A, right? It will be blown up this big on the wall in front of a jury of your peers. And then the third function, which is most critical to our talk today, is the role that the chart has in the plaintiff's attorney's decision whether or not to sue you. And I'm of the belief that if even one chart prevents you from being sued because of the quality and degree of detail in your documentation, it's worth it. Because the extra minute and a half you spend on that chart just saved you roughly three to five years of your life and hours of lost wages, time away from your family, GERD, etc. So let's get to the good stuff. We'll start with the story of Kelly Robinson. And Kelly's story is germane to our time together today because of the role that documentation played in her course, shall we say. And many of the vulnerabilities that we'll talk about today were present in Kelly's case, and they were strongly exploited at trial. So it's a nice illustration. Nice probably isn't the right word, but it is a, a useful illustration of how documentation can be so important when the plaintiff's attorney has a hold of your chart. So you'll notice, you see that yellow sticker in the corner? Plaintiff's Exhibit 1J, right? And, uh, and your chart, again, could be this big on the wall in front of the jury. So Kelly, she presents to the emergency department with a bit of a sore throat. She's had it for a couple few days. She's a 40-some-year-old female, a little bit of hypertension, but no other significant medical problems. She sees her physician often enough to keep up to date on her medications. She is taking her lisinopril for her hypertension. Um, and she just, you know, her birthday's coming up and she wants to feel well for the weekend. So she's sent to the fast track department of the emergency department. She's seen by a qualified physician assistant who's been working in the ER for years, knows how the, knows how the stone rolls in the emergency department. And you have your vital signs there. She's rating her pain at seven out of 10 and the physician assistant does an exam, takes a history, does an exam. We find that she's got a marked, relatively marked exudative tonsillitis, a little bit worse on one side than the other, but the uvula is midline, her secretions are controlled, her phonation is normal, her neck is supple. Seems reasonable, yeah? 
Anybody concerned? Oh gosh, stat ignition, right? Not so much, it's a sore throat, yes? Am I crazy? Yes. Right, so our rapid strep is done. Regardless of your opinion on the utility of rapid strep test, it was done, it was negative. The patient was diagnosed with viral pharyngitis, provided with a prescription for prednisone and analgesia, sent off into the world. Seems reasonable. Anyone think that's not reasonable at this point? I know it's a medical legal lecture. That's a trick question, right? All right. Less than nine hours later, she comes back. Same emergency department, same fast track, same symptoms. But she doesn't feel better. In fact, she feels a little bit worse. Now, your vital signs are listed for you there. Still hypertensive. She was hypertensive before. But now she's also tachycardic. Anybody else notice anything different about the quote-unquote vital signs on that page? Pain score, yes. What was her pain last time? Anybody remember? Seven out of 10, thank you. Now what is it? 10 out of 10. How many of us in this room take care of patients with 10 out of 10 pain? How many of us take care of patients with 10 out of 10 pain who are texting and or too busy to get off their phones to talk to you and give you the history? and or asking for something to eat. Is that objective 10 out of 10 pain? Right? 10 out of 10 pain is a medical emergency, right? Until proven otherwise. 10 out of 10 pain is compartment syndrome or a neck fash or something horrible, right? True 10 out of 10 pain is an imminent delivery, right? Oh boy, go get the, the baby warmer, right? So. We take care of patients with 10 out of 10 pain all the time. I suspect the objective opinion of the provider who took care of Kelly at this time was that maybe it wasn't really 10 out of 10 pain. But that's what's on the chart, right? So an examination is done. It's very similar to prior. Really the only significant change. Still no trismus, still a nice supple neck, still controlling secretions, normal phonation. But maybe there's a little bit of submandibular swelling and tenderness on the right side. Eh, that would be right side. Other than that, nothing terribly exciting. What happens? A monospot is added. The monospot is negative. The patient is advised, you know, you haven't had a chance to take your medications yet. I get it. It's a weekend morning. You haven't had a chance to get those filled. But you need to get them filled. Here's a prescription for a stronger medicine. I'll give you a little Lortab. But it's going to take some time. You're, you're going to need to wait for your symptoms to get better. Okay. Visit three. Within 24 hours of visit two. So now we're talking a time span of less than 30 hours and three visits to the same emergency department. Anybody see anything concerning on this page? I do, right? So it's not a surprise that now she's not fast-tracked. She goes to the main emergency department. She's seen by an attending and a resident. Pretty broad spectrum of, of treatments are ordered, labs, fluids. Um, she gets an exam pretty quick. Notice that pain scale. Still 10 out of 10, right? Here's your labs. Anybody worried about that? Yeah, it's your heart beating just a little faster, right? All right, so from this standpoint, she's already got two wide bore IVs, she's already gotten broad spectrum antibiotics, and she gets sent off to the CT scanner. Yes, seem reasonable? Now she can't move her neck, she can't swallow, she's got crazy over the top pain. What are you thinking about? Retropharyngeal abscess maybe, right? Or something else that's bad, that involves the airway, right? These things are at least crossing your mind, yes? Shake your head, yes. Kissing tonsils on your CT, also on a different cut from epiglottitis. Let me stop hitting the microphone. And this, air where it shouldn't be, enough to strike fear into the hearts of even the hardiest emergency physician. And where does she go next? To the OR. And what happens when that scalpel penetrates the fascia of the neck? Copious dishwater-like fluid and a 30-day ICU stay after a pretty nasty case of necrotizing fasciitis of the neck. Now, could this possibly have been seen on the first visit? Could it possibly have been seen on the second? It's 
very easy to make these kinds of judgments retrospectively, right? And this is what a plaintiff's attorney does for a living. And I'm not here to impugn their character, although I might be tempted. But how did this happen? And this isn't a medical talk, this is a medical legal talk. How did we get here? How did we get to a $755,000 verdict for the plaintiffs and an extremely bad set of public relations issues for the institution involved? There was a 10-minute soft expose on the local news channel um, impugning the quality of care provided at that institution, particularly the quality of care provided by advanced practice providers, very little of which was actually based in fact, in my opinion. <laughs> Might be biased. But not only do we have a terrible outcome for our patient, which is our first priority, but we also have some concomitant issues as well. So let's talk about how the plaintiff's attorney decides to take this case. And part of the reason I like to use this case is because I know this plaintiff's attorney, and I've talked to him about this case. And because this case went all the way to trial, um, his work product and techniques are still confidential, but things that came out by being in the courtroom, by seeing what happened in the courtroom is all free public domain, right? Somebody called his office, right? The case has to get to him. And there's a screening process. Usually there's often a nurse paralegal or some other person who screens the case. A uh, very few proportion of those cases make it to the attorney's desk. And then a very low proportion of those cases actually make it to an invitation to sit at the shiny oak coffee, well, it's probably not oak, it's probably cherry, uh, conference table and have a cup of coffee and talk about your case. And this is where the plaintiff's attorney gets to meet their potential new client, vet them for credibility and likability. And after this potential plaintiff has a chance to help tell his or her story, what is the next thing the plaintiff's attorney wants to see? The chart. That, if they haven't already decided because of the overwhelming damages or the risk-benefit analysis from a business perspective of whether or not this case is a good case to take and whether or not there are significant legal issues that might cause a problem, the next thing that that plaintiff's attorney wants to see is your record. And that, if they haven't already made up their mind, is not only how they're going to decide whether or not to take the case, but how they're going to decide who to sue. Which leads me back to Kelly Robinson. Who got sued in that case? No. The answer was everyone. And the, the, the real answer is not everyone. Not the first physician assistant who saw the patient. Not the folks who took care of her at her third visit. But the physician assistant who saw her at the second visit. And the supervising attending who signed off on the chart but didn't see the patient. And part of that I can tell you with basis in fact, was based on the medical record, a significant part of it. And some of the vulnerabilities in the chart, which we're getting to next. Things a plaintiff attorney loves to see in your record. Abnormal things that you didn't deal with. Can be vital signs, can be imaging findings, can be labs, can be physical exam findings. But if it's abnormal and it's in the chart, it's your responsibility. Now, does that mean everybody who goes home has to be 100% normal? <laughs> it's a silly question, right? It's impossible. Do we send people home with abnormal vital signs? I do. Anybody else? Yeah, sometimes it happens. Sometimes there's a perfectly good and benign reason for a patient to have an abnormal finding. Do we send people home with incidental findings that are abnormal but don't require admission? I do. Anybody else? Right, it happens. So if there's one thing you take home with you today, you have to appreciate it, you have to address it, and then you can move on. You can move on to your next patient and the next emergency that's waiting for you, all right? Delays and discrepancies. One of the most common um, allegations on a medical malpractice claim are either delay in diagnosis or delay in treatment. And there are often, at least in my shop, Delays that are completely out of my control. Things like multiple traumas. Now the CT scanner is tied up for the next two and a half hours, and everybody else is waiting. Does that happen to anybody else? Yes. How about the case of the elusive consultants, when it takes you two and a half hours to get somebody on the phone who then tells you to call someone else? Does that happen to just me? Right. So delays are important. They happen. We can't always avoid them, but you have to acknowledge them, address them, 
and move on. Another problem in Kelly's case was the suggestion of bias. Some of the words that were chosen were allowed the plaintiff's attorney to paint the picture that her symptoms had been taken seriously. Allowed the plaintiff's attorney to paint the picture that she kind of just got patted on the head and said, you know what, go home and take your medicine. You'll be fine. Right? And this is all about a story. Plaintiff's attorneys are telling a story in the courtroom, and you want to be the one telling the story. Right? You don't want the plaintiff's attorney to be able to tell your story for you, do you? Right? We'll talk about some EMR perils, and we have to mention discharge instructions, because discharge instructions are extremely important. They're part of the medical record, and sometimes they can make or break you in litigation. All right, vital signs. People come in and leave with abnormals. It's okay, but you have to deal with it, right? So how do you, let's say you send someone home with maltachycardia. How do you deal with it? Tachycardia, appreciate it. Commensurate with fever. You don't, you don't have to use a big word, right? Mild fever, appropriate, go home, right? We send kids home with fevers all the time. Tachycardia appreciated. Patient mildly dehydrated. Encourage fluids. Goodbye. Right? Sometimes it's okay to send people home. And if your chart reflects that you appreciated it and in your clinical judgment, your objective findings supported the fact that these findings were benign, you've acknowledged it, you've addressed it, you can move on. Same is true of missing vital signs. This can either be missing sets initially, i.e. work in a shop where for some reason pediatric blood pressures are, require a bribe of some kind. Um, particularly if your hospital has a protocol that all patients of a certain age require a full set of vital signs on presentation to the emergency department and you fail to ensure that those vital signs are obtained, now your hospital policy is kind of a de facto evidence of the standard of care and your failure to ensure that these vital signs were obtained can be at least put forth in the court as a failure to meet a local standard of care that was established by your institution, right? The same is true of repeat vital signs. Let's say your shop has a policy where if they come in with the abnormal vital signs, they must be rechecked if they're in the department for more than a half an hour, or if they're in the department for more than an hour or two or four or whatever it is, you must have a repeat set. Does anybody have a policy like that? Good to find out, right? But if those things are omitted and missed, that's a problem. So we have all these plates that we're twirling in the air, right? You've got a lot more important things to worry about than the numbers on your chart. But from a medical legal perspective, it's worth keeping your eye out for these things because they can get you in trouble. Plaintiffs love that stuff. They love making it look like you weren't paying attention and you let details that were critical to your patient's outcome slip through your fingers. We talked about pain already. Super important. Here are some examples. The first two are associated with the vital signs, like what we talked about earlier. This one, how do you dispute your patient's perception of their pain? It does you no good to walk up to your patient and say, sir, are you sure your pain's 10 out of 10? Do you know what 10 out of 10 means? Right? No one's going to win from that. Your patient's going to be annoyed with you and think you're condescending to them and not taking them seriously, right? And maybe you are, a little. Um, and two, now it's a he said, she said thing. This is a, a hard, cold number on the chart. It's hard to fight with numbers, right? And only the patient can tell you what 10 out of 10 pain is. But if they're lying on their, on their stomach, if they're prone on the cart, propped up on their elbows, playing Tetris, right? Probably not 10 out of 10 pain. And that's how I suggest you counteract these numbers. If you're looking at a patient who's some, describing something to you that's just off the charts, and their presentation is completely benign. Put something objective in the chart. Describe what you see so that the person who reads your chart later can stand in your shoes and know why in your professional clinical judgment it was okay for that patient to go home. My personal favorite is asking for a turkey sandwich. <laughs> because not only do they know what's on the menu, but they want to eat it. Right? God. So, Choose, you know, this is a very individual thing. This is a practice pattern thing, and you have to decide what you're comfortable with and what you're not. But those objective findings on the chart, what you saw and that you based your medical decisions upon are a great thing to see in your record. All right, moving on. Other findings. You might find something on a physical exam. Let's say you find a skin lesion. Now, am I suggesting you need to do a head and toe skin exam on every patient that you see? Of course not. But if you see an abnormal scalp lesion 
on someone that looks a little suspicious, maybe they should get that checked out, right? It's our responsibility. If you see it, acknowledge it, address it, move on. What do you need to do? Hey, you got a little spot on your scalp there. How long has that been there? Hmm. You might want to follow up with your doc about that. Probably should see him within the next month or so. Make sure you get that checked out. Do you have a dermatologist? Right? Do you have to get a stat dermatology consult? Of course not. Does anyone have that, by the way? Yeah, not me. And what's most important about addressing these incidental abnormals that don't affect your care, not only do you have to tell your patient, but you have to put it in your discharge instructions, right? Because all the literature shows us that patients either don't understand what we tell them, or if they do understand it, they don't remember it. All of the literature tells us that, that, that numbers that go up to the 90%, that when patients are asked to recall one of four key elements of their discharge instructions, i.e., what happened, why, what we found, and what you should do about it, they can't even recall one. So even if we think we're being stellar communicators and we've done every communication workshop that our institution provides, our patients aren't getting it. So you have to put it in the discharge instructions. Plain language, easy. There was a spot on your skin, on your scalp. Head is even better. Call your doc next week. Schedule an appointment for within the next month. Please make sure you get follow-up on this. It could be something that requires further treatment, right? It doesn't have to be a novel. It doesn't even have to be that wordy. I'm a lawyer. I talk too much, right? But you do have to acknowledge it, address it, put it in the discharge instructions, and move on. Same thing is true of mild lab abnormalities, let's say mildly elevated LFTs or something else. Same thing is true of incidental imaging findings, like cholelithiasis. They come in for belly pain as part of their workup. You find out they have gallstones. It's not cholecystitis. They can go home, right? How many of you have taken care of a patient who was seen within the last number of hours to days, either at your institution or somewhere else, and they say, yeah, I've had this problem. I got seen, and they didn't do anything for me, right? And if you are lucky enough to have access to the medical record, and you can see, well, gosh, gee whiz, labs were taken, an ultrasound was done, the patient was diagnosed with cholelithiasis, and a surgical consult was referred in the outpatient setting, right? Patients have different perceptions, and patients have different recollections. So these are the kinds of things. These top two lines are for your chart. They're not for the discharge instructions. Patients have no idea what this means. U.S., that's a nation, right? Cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, who knows what that means? Same thing with PT. Patient doesn't know that what PT stands for. That's for your chart. What's underneath here is one example. It's a little verbose, but one example of how you can turn into plain language the few lines you want to see in your discharge instructions. Here's another example. You got gallstones. See your doctor. You got a time frame here. You also have symptoms that are significant reasons for return and a time frame in which to do it. Those time frames are key. You read these um, lawsuits where people are seen for chest pain. They're advised to follow up with their doctor, but there's no time frame. And now suddenly these very good clinical recommendations are deemed useless by the plaintiff's attorney because, well, when were they supposed to go? Were they supposed to go in two hours, two days, two weeks? Doctor, you didn't tell your patient what to do. How could they have known? If you are blessed enough to have a medical record where you can pre-draft some of these things, then you can do it in a few keystrokes, right? You do a couple smart phrases for your most common diagnoses, and then you can do it very easily. But if you don't have that, again, I hesitate to use the word luxury in the same sentence as EMR, but if you don't have that ability within your system, you got to come up with a few simple, pat, easy, plain language phrases to use in your discharge instructions. And those 12-page discharge instructions, does anybody read them? Have you read them? Do you have canned discharge instructions in your institution? They're terrible, right? And your institution expects that you send them home with your patient. Okay, got to do it, fine. But let's have something meaningful in the chart, too. All right, moving on to delays. Two cases here. In the interest of time, I'll just talk about the first. This was a compartment syndrome case. This was a battle of the dueling consultants case. The ER doc recognized that the patient was at high risk for compartment syndrome, minor lower extremity injury on Coumadin, had some leg pain, still neurovascularly intact, but concerning enough findings to not want to send the guy home. Didn't have a striker needle for whatever reason, community hospital. 
This hospital has a policy where if the patient has a pre-existing relationship with an orthopod, you call that doc, we'll call him doc A. If they don't have a pre-existing relationship with an orthopod, then you call the doc on call, doc B. Guess what happened in this case? Yeah, I've seen this patient before, but it was two years ago. I'm not on call, call doc B. What are you talking about? Why are you calling me? This patient has seen doc A, call doc A. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Patient is ultimately admitted after a six hour emergency department stay to family practice. And when the chart is blown up on a screen this big, I was in the courtroom for this one as a witness, not as a witness, but as an observer. Um, thankfully not as a defendant, thank you. Um, highlighted is every time, and, and this was an older case, it was still a handwritten chart, highlighted is every time the resident wrote compartment syndrome. How many times do you think it was? 12, right? Who got sued? Doc A? No. Doc B? No. ER doc got sued. A week in trial. And the biggest problem in this case was a great, he was a good doc. He knew what he was doing. He knew, he knew what to, to look for and what to do. Uh, but his charting was not so good. And there was a big hole in the chart where none of the conversation, none of the procedure, none of the process, none of the delay or the reason for it was documented. So how do we deal with these situations? We're professionals. We have to act like professionals. No one is benefited by, uh, how do I say, a battle of the wills in the chart. Plaintiff's attorneys love it when we start pointing our fingers at each other. It's like food for their souls, right? Because now they, can use, they pit us against each other. And not only do we impugn the care of the other provider, but we also make ourselves look like we're 12, right? So how do we document these things? A, what happened? What happened? Document it objectively and professionally. Acknowledge it. Move on, right? You have to do what's right for your patient. So regardless of what the other options may have been for this emergency department physician in the treatment and care of his patient, the key thing to walk away with is the documentation of his advocacy for his patient. Because he was advocating for his patient. He was trying to do the right thing, and he was frustrated. So how do you do that? It's a time date stamp. It's what you did, i.e., who you talked to, the objective representation of the substance of that conversation, and the outcome. 9.22 a.m., talked with Dr. A. Recommends talking with Dr. B, ortho on call. 9.20, and then, you know, Dr. B paged. 9.46 a.m., repaged Dr. B. 10.22 a.m., was I on a.m. or p.m.? I can't remember. Repaged Dr. B, right? A half an hour later, spoke with Dr. B. Recommends speaking with Dr. A, right? You don't, uh, you really want to avoid any value-laden, any expressing your frustration in the chart. You can't do that. But don't fall on your own sword, okay? They're not gonna do it for you. Don't do it for them. Objective documentation of what happened and why you did what you did. Now, do you decide to transfer this patient? Maybe. Do you decide to call your administrator? Maybe. Maybe you feel like the patient is stable enough to be admitted to family practice and it's only the concern of the developing possibility of compartment syndrome, not the presence of it, right? So you have to put those things in your chart. This can be true of the battle of the consultants and or admitting physicians. It can also be true of processes that are intrinsic to the emergency department itself. A multiple trauma, right? Now your scanners are tied up. Let's say your chemistry analyzer goes down and now you're sending all of your labs to the hospital 20 miles down the road. Does that ever happen to anybody? I don't even want to talk about it. Downtime, right? Downtime, everybody loves downtime. So if that's the case, okay, you know, it's not a blame shifting thing. It's acknowledging, moving on, right? All right, this is one example. I don't know how well you can see this. And this is only a third of the chart. But essentially, it's your time date stamp. This patient got an MRI. Uh, less than two hours later, amazingly, back from MRI, clinical exam is, is noted that the patient is reevaluated. No change in clinical condition. He looks pretty good, he wants to eat, right? 
Less than five minutes later, you got a wet read, and less than four minutes later, the paging process for a surgical consultation is initiated. Now, this was a case where uh, it was a hand case. They didn't have hand on call. They called another institution. You know how this goes. Um, the first hand doc says, you know, I'm kind of busy, right? The second hand doc says, yeah, I'll take them if your your in-house ortho sees them first. Ortho says, why are you calling me after they take an hour and a half to call you back? Right? I'll do hand. And this chart goes on for a while. And this is just one explanation of um, uh, time date stamp, what happened, what you did about it. It goes on to talk about talking with the administrator and everything else. So that's one example. Let's move on to discrepancies. These can be discrepancies between providers, whether it's physician and nursing staff, whether it's attending versus resident or um, advanced practice provider versus supervising attending. Um, and it can also be within your own documentation. And that is one of the perils of EMR. It's, it's very easy to contradict yourself and not realize it. And one of your greatest assets in the event of a plaintiff's attorney review is your credibility. And if they can poke holes in your credibility, you've lost a lot. So let's talk about the first, between providers. This not only applies to between physicians and or care providers, but also to nursing staff, radiology staff, anybody who lays hands and eyes on your patient. What do you do? Anybody ever looked at a, che a chest x-ray and you happen to notice that the chief complaint listed by the radiology tech on the chest x-ray has nothing to do with what you talked about your patient with your patient? Like, what the heck is that, right? We didn't talk about that. Suddenly now they have crushing chest pain and they can't breathe. What do you do about that? Do you call up your rad tech and say, what are you doing? Can you, can you change that for me? Anybody in this room want to do that? Please don't. Don't do it. Now, calling up your rad tech and talking to them and saying, hey, I noticed what you put in the chart. What does that mean? Perfectly okay. Fantastic. Maybe they picked up on something that you didn't. Or maybe the patient's story changed in the hour and a half between the time that you saw them and the time that they got to radiology. Picking up the phone is great. Asking somebody to change what they charted is not. Because now, one of the other bonuses of the electronic medical record is something called metadata. Anybody heard of that? Every keystroke, every version of a chart, whether or not it's been separately saved, is available for discovery with a time date stamp attached to it. Now, right now, it's expensive and cumbersome. But plaintiffs at bars are holding seminars on how to make it less expensive and less cumbersome. And you can bet that before too long, it's going to be pretty easy for a plaintiff's attorney to put up on a wall like this, well, doctor, at 9.15, your chart said that the patient had chest pain. But at 10.22, your chart changed. And now the patient has never had chest pain. Tell me, doctor, when were you wrong? Right? So that's something we have to think about. Now, if it's plain error, let's say the heart, weight, the heart rate was recorded at 198 instead of 98, or the respiratory rate was recorded as 98 instead of the pulse ox of 98, that's plain error, right? That's different. Somebody typed the wrong key. So that's a, that's a reasonable thing to follow up on. Hey, can you fix that? Or hey, can you put an amendment in that? That that was a plain error. If you don't have the opportunity, let's say that provider has already gone home, they've signed out on their chart, what do you do? Vital signs as documented appreciated. Suspect error. On my exam, heart rate is 70, pulse ox is 98%, respiratory rate is 14. Easy. You appreciated it, you acknowledged it, you moved on. Does that make sense? Same is true of missing vital signs. Anybody ever seen a patient, done the whole workup, you go to close your chart at the end of your shift and there's not a vital sign on the chart? Anyone? Yeah. Painful. But you saw the patient. You laid eyes on them. You listened to them, yes? You can estimate based on your exam by auscultation, heart rate approximately 70 beats per minute. Patient conversational, no, no distress, fully conversational, 10-word sentences, right? That's a way to accommodate for discrepancies between and or absences of important charting. All right, so that's a way to do it. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, the question was about time date stamping back. If you're completing your chart hours or days later, 
try to get it done as soon as you can, but I, I very much understand that it's not always possible. Do you retroactively time date stamp, right? This is a tricky area, right? And one of the things that we need to talk about is how to properly amend a chart, because God forbid you amended a chart that became contested, because the first thing the plaintiff's attorney is going to do is try to make you look like a liar and try to make you look like you were covering your posterior portions, right? And if they succeed in doing that, you're done. You, you've lost everything. So amending a chart properly is extremely important. Big letters, amendum, addendum, excuse me, more coffee, addendum, time date stamp. Absent vital signs appreciated. On my examination of this patient, heart rate was approximately XYZ, respiratory rate was approximately XYZ. Does that make sense to you? Same thing is true of any other amendment. Let's say you're closing your chart later and you notice that the full report of the radiology report was a little bit different than your wet read. Ever happened to you? Yeah, those radiologists are sneaky, right? So it's late, it might be days later when you're getting to this, hopefully not too many days. Addendum, time date stamp. Radiology report, maybe you put in parentheses, not available at the time of care. Jab to our friends in the dark room. Appreciated. Additional findings noted. And then what action did you take? Did you call the patient? Did you call their primary care doc? Did you call your case manager to say, hey, I need your help following up with this patient? Right? Whatever you do. Or maybe you don't think it's that important. Right? If it's not that important, maybe it's not a big deal. Noted. Acceptable for outpatient follow-up, patient not contacted. That might be okay, too, right? It might be okay, depending on the case and depending on the finding. But you at least have drawn attention to the fact that you saw it, you didn't think it was significant, and you thought the primary care could handle it. And if you're lucky enough for them to take a look at your note, they might appreciate that. Make sense? More questions, yes. Yes, the scribe. Yes. Any scribes in the room right now? Sweet. All right. Scribes are a blessing and a curse. Scribes help us do our job better, faster, spend more time looking at a patient instead of looking at a computer. Those things are good. But when you sign your name to the bottom of the chart, you are attesting and making everything on the chart your own. It's as if you typed it. Sometimes scribes don't get it, right? Sometimes they want to go to medical school someday, right? And that's why they're in the emergency department. Sometimes they just, they were in the right place at the right time and they got offered a job and they have only the month of orientation training with their scribe company. And that's all they know about medicine. They don't always know what's important and they don't always get it right. So where the time factor comes in with scribes is you've got, you've got to look at the chart. You have to proofread it and make sure that what is put in the chart is, accurate, is actually accurate. When most folks will have an attestation at the bottom of the chart that when you sign off, it says this, scribe, uh, this was a scribed chart, but I have reviewed and agree and adopt, in my own, as my own words, everything contained herein. That's le legal talk, sorry. But you know what I mean, right? So that's very important that you, you must review your scribed chart. You must make sure it's accurate and you must fix any errors that are there. Does that answer your question? If you're taking a chart on as your own. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and that wasn't an issue until metadata became big. The question was, all right, let's say you do carefully proofread your chart and you find something that the scribe put in that wasn't correct or wasn't how you would have represented it, and you want to change it. Absolutely change it. And what you could do then, perhaps, including at the bottom of your attestation, so you don't have to do it every time, is um, on review, right, the chart was uh, updated to ensure correctness or something like that. I think if you start delving into um, each individual addendum that you're changing before you've signed off on the chart, A, you'll make yourself crazy, and B, you could potentially open yourself up to drawing the plaintiff's attorney's attention to the fact that you changed something that you thought was important enough to change. So until metadata becomes so commonplace that everybody does it every time, I would say that probably the risk versus benefit of that is, is less critical than just making sure it's correct and making any changes that you feel are necessary. Yes, question. I mean, you said all that about 
The question was, is there anything in the legal literature about whether a scribe chart is more or less likely to get you into hot water, essentially? Um, is, it, is it a higher or lower risk? And the answer is not yet. Um, I don't know even if there are any studies like that happening right now, but I imagine, particularly in those larger companies that use their own internal scribes, that those studies are absolutely in process. Absolutely. All right. Also includes red flag words, um, things like lethargic. Inconsolable, irritable, right? Particularly with uh, the wee littles. So your nurse puts that in the chart, or, or it comes out of the patient's, the mother's mouth. That happens, right? It's there, it's in black and white. What do you do? Acknowledge it, address it, move on. Nursing note appreciated on my exam. Patient is not lethargic. Playing with the wall toy, drinking Mountain Dew, positive cheese puff sign, right? Don't put that down, please, but you could certainly say eating cheese puffs, right? So these are the kinds of objective findings that you can use to counteract these intraprovider discrepancies, and these red flag words are big. Attorneys love them. Here are some examples, summary of what we've talked about. Chief complaint is headache, neck pain, and fever. But you walk in and the patient says, yeah, I got a little bit of a cough, a little bit of sore throat. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example, given our first case, but still. I, I noticed it. I asked my patient about it. They said, no, doc, my neck doesn't hurt. Right? Move on. Same thing is true of the kiddos. And we already talked about plain error. I cannot stress to you how important medical decision making is. This is not medical decision making. Medical decision making is not the ED course. They can be in the same section. That's fine, right? Medical decision-making is a window into your brain explaining why you did what you did or why you didn't do what you didn't do, which is, of course, now retrospectively becoming a huge issue, right? Why you didn't CTA that patient for PE, why you didn't feel they needed to be admitted for their sore throat fever and tachycardia, etc. right? This is not medical decision-making, and I see charts like this all the time. This gives you no idea what you were thinking when you decided what you were going to do from, for the patient. Anybody disagree with me? Does anybody know what's going on with this patient right now? Kind of a trick question. I didn't give you anything else, right? Right. Super important. It doesn't have to be a novel. It doesn't have to be Shakespeare. But I need to know what you're thinking. PE considered. Perk negative. No CTA. Fine. That's great. Now, sure, maybe it turns out down the line you were wrong but you've acknowledged a, val a validated decision-making tool that you were relying upon that is commonly accepted in the medical field, right? You used your clinical acumen, you made a clinical judgment call, something bad happened, doesn't mean it's malpractice, right? So medical decision-making is extremely important. In the interest of time, moving on to bias, that was a big problem in Robinson. There were words in the chart like hysterical and emotionally labile in that second visit that was at the focus of the litigation. That, coupled with the phrase, patient was advised that she's going to take a little bit of time to get better, allowed the plaintiff's attorney to paint the picture that the patient just wasn't taken seriously. She got blown off. And that, obviously, did not play well with the jury. Davis versus Tenet Health Systems is a pending case. I have no personal knowledge of it. This is a screenshot from the video that's available on the internet from a Freedom of Information Act request. This screenshot was taken approximately 10 minutes before this former patient of an emergency department died of massive bilateral PE on the floor of her jail cell. She'd been seen, I think, four or five times over the course of 15 days had been admitted after a fall for an ankle sprain and leg pain and had bilateral lower extremity Dopplers, an echo, went home, came back, had repeat bilateral lower extremity Dopplers, which were negative, then wheeled herself over to the children's hospital next door, and they said, I'm sorry, ma'am, we can't help you. Why don't you go to this hospital? She wheels herself back over to the next hospital she's seen, she's discharged, and finally ends up being physically removed from an emergency department waiting room 
by police, unable to walk, lifted up, carried into the squad car, lifted up from the squad car, carried into the jail, and I know this because you can watch it on the internet. And about uh, 30 seconds after this, the video cuts. She's lying on the floor moaning. The video cuts to the fire chief and the corrections officer cleaning up the code detritus, the paraphernalia of, of the EMS call to the jail. And the fire chief says, gee, Bob, what happened? And the corrections officer says, gosh, Jim, I don't know. We just picked her up from the hospital. They thought she was a drug seeker. Now, I haven't seen this chart. I don't know what's on it, but gosh, I hope it's good. Because it's going to be very uncomfortable to be the last EP that laid hands on this patient. Now, who knows what the medical facts are? I don't. But I do know how this is going to play in front of a jury. And God forbid this video gets to, to, to before them. That's not good, right? So, and the problem here, again, was somehow corrections officers gained the impression that the emergency department physician thought this patient was a drug seeker. Now, maybe there was very good objective evidence that that was indeed the case. Am I suggesting that you can never write drug-seeking behavior on your chart? No. And now, particularly with our Fed's recent move, very strong push in a multitude of states, including my own, they're making healthcare fraud enforcement one of their top priorities going after narcotic abuse and diversion. Protect your DEA, right? If you suspect drug diversion or abuse, it's our responsibility to not prescribe more narcotics, note it appropriately in your chart, help protect the next provider who takes care of this patient. But you have to be extremely careful. And if you want to see this video, the patient's name is Anna Brown. Ms. Davis is suing on Ms. Brown's behalf. So if you use your favorite web engine search to search Anna Brown, Missouri death, it'll probably come up for you. Beware the loaded adjective. These are all adjectives I've seen in the medical record. Now, you have to remember that words have different meanings for you and for me than they do for the lay public, right? Hysteria used to be a medical diagnosis, right? Not that long ago. So a term that you and I use in a way that makes perfect objective sense to a lay person can sound horribly offensive, right? And again, this is about a picture that a plaintiff's attorney can paint. This is about a story that's being told. And you don't want that story to be that you didn't care about your patient. So what do you do with the patient that's, what's the word, all over the place? What do you do with that? What if they're in your face and they're shaking their finger at you and they're accusing you of all sorts of horrible crimes against humanity, employing profanity to express their displeasure with their service? Right, what do you do with that? Is there a 100% right answer? I don't know. But what do I do? I quote them. Right? Because now it's not my judgment. It's not my, not my characterization of their behavior. It's black and white. They called me, you blankety blank this, blankety blank that. I'm going to sue your blankety blank blank. Right? <laughs> now, there are some people who feel very uncomfortable putting profanity in the chart. And if you're one of those people, that's fine. You don't have to write it out. There are plenty of pleasant abbreviations for profanity, right? And you don't have to write down every single word that they say. But if as you are describing the patient who's prone on the cart texting, you also are using the patient's own words and own actions and your objective descriptions of those things to paint the picture of what happened and why the care turned out the way that it did, now you're the one telling the story, not the plaintiff's attorney. Does that make sense? All right. Moving on. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, that's great, Nordland. You're a lawyer. You've got a, you've got a lawyer sitting on your shoulder. I just, want to, I just want to take care of my patients. Really? Let's just do good medicine. And of course, first and foremost is doing the right thing. Do the right thing for your patients, right? Nothing can trump that. There will always be a lawyer who can say you did something wrong. Always. So just put that. There is no perfect answer. Put that out of your mind. This is a case that came out of Michigan a couple years ago where the uh, defense attorney somewhat ineloquently stated, well, it's just a chart. So what? It's not like something bad happened to the patient because a subsequent care provider relied on that chart, and because it was so bad, they did something that harmed the patient. 
this plaintiff's attorney or defense attorney is saying, look, so what? There's no causation. A, plaintiff a plaintiff's attorney has to prove duty, breach, causation, and damages to win their case. If a defense attorney can say, well, sure, maybe there was malpractice, but there was no causation, case over, defense verdict. Here's what the Court of Appeals of Michigan said about that. Eh, not so much. Documentation is circumstantial evidence that the doc did not live up to the standard of care. So if you know anything about law, you might be thinking, well, it's only circumstantial. It's still evidence. Do you want your medical record to be used as evidence against you? No. All right. We'll wrap up with the perils of EMR today. There are many, myriad perils. We've talked about some of them already. Cloning, overclicking, and reliance on templates. You have to be very careful with accidentally charting something that you didn't actually do. It's very easy to do. Not only is it fraud, but then it makes it very easy for the plaintiff's attorney to say, well, doctor, you charted this and you didn't do it. What else did you chart that you didn't do? And you've lost your credibility. Same is true of um, the cloning te technically applies to patients who see the same, to docs who see the same patient every day in patient docs. But sometimes we do too, right? Who's seen the same patient three days in a row? I have. Right? Can you go back, cut and paste from your chart, from your chart from the day before, and put it into your new chart? <laughs> right? Now there's utility for that. Cutting and pasting has some uses, as long as it's clearly demarcated. From previous visit, Dr. Smith, cut and paste, clearly delineated, go back to your chart. Makes it easier. You don't have to go look at the other chart. Everybody who takes care of the patient after you did can see what happened on both days only looking at one screen. That's great. But it has to be attributed, and it cannot substitute for your new experience with this patient. Same is true of automatic attestation phrases. If the patient elopes before you see them, but your automatic attestation phrase at the bottom of the chart says you saw and examined the patient and confirmed the essential components of the history and physical, guess what you've just done? Fraud. Not only that, but now you have no credibility if your chart is disputed. We had a brief talk about scribes, and anyone who wants to talk about that, we'll talk about that in the hall because we're, we're running low on time here. But the same, I want to comment about um, digital dictation programs. I won't use any brand names here, but you know who you are. You can get into trouble with these programs. You have to review your chart because key things like not sometimes go away, right? And it's one thing to put a little attestation at the bottom of your chart that says, that says this was digitally dictated. Occasionally, small typographical errors occur. He versus she, something like that. But if it's substantive in your record, the next question is going to be, well, doctor, you accept a certain level of error and omissions in your chart. What else is omitted here? What else is wrong? Right? See what we're talking about here? All right. We've got to be getting close. I'm getting waves from the back. So I'll forward here to the end. We already talked about discharge instructions. This Robinson was a case in which the discharge instructions were dispositive in defending the EP from an allegation of negligence in a compartment syndrome of a leg that resulted in permanent foot drop of a scholarship football player. That um, quote from the court was a $55 million verdict, in case you're wondering. We talked about discharge instructions, a lovely quote from a legend in our college. And discharge instructions for you. Thank you very much for your time today.